we're beginning a new series going through the book of Ephesians. This book was written by Paul when he was written uh, when he was in prison, written to the church in uh, in Ephesus. Uh, the church in Ephesus at this stage had been around for about ten years. You can see it's uh, it's starting in the book of Acts. And when Paul wrote this letter, you can really hear the heart of him throughout this entire book. He has a real father heart for the church in Ephesus, and he's really proud of this church and what they've accomplished. This church, they had been hugely successful in their ministry and they had seen a tremendous number of people come to a saving knowledge of Jesus. But after about 10 years of this church being around, there began to be some friction between the Jewish Christians in the church and the Gentile Christians. And the differences that they were facing and the friction that they were facing with one another was based on their cultural differences. And that was the thing driving their disagreements. And to respond to these uh, differences and the friction that these two groups had with one another, Paul writes this letter to the church in Ephesus with two main themes. First theme is that the Christians would, uh, would understand that their primary identity is in Christ. It's not based on their race or their nationality or their cultural heritage. Their identity is in Christ and who he says you are. And then the second theme is the implications of this on your life and also how this affects uh, how you interact with the people around you. Now, most of us want to know about the implications on life. We want to get to the practical um, stuff that we can really grab a hold of and then walk out of this place knowing what we have to do. But before we can get to that point, before we can understand the practical implications of having our identity in Christ, we have to do the hard work of understanding what it means to have identity in Christ. Now, identity is important to everyone. That innermost way that we view ourselves and we believe that other people view us. So much so, this is so important to us in our society today, that we've adopted this phrase, an identity crisis, for when things go wrong at different points in our life with our identity. So firstly, you might have a quarter life crisis. That point in life when you're in your late 20s or early 30s, and you're starting to feel a little bit disillusioned with the world. It's that point when younger people are really recognising their adulthood, they're realising that there's responsibilities and expectations in life uh, that come along with, uh, with everyday life. And I've tried to convince my wife that when I was going through my own quarter-life crisis, I tried to convince my wife to let me get a motorbike. Uh, that was unsuccessful, unfortunately, so I'm holding out for my midlife crisis. This midlife crisis, this will usually happen in your 40s, uh, late 40s and 50s, when you start feeling a bit more restless and dissatisfied with your life. Often a midlife crisis, it will be marked by significant career change or a hobby change as people try to reinvent themselves. And I've already planned my midlife crisis. I'm going to get a houseboat for my midlife crisis. I'm planning ahead. Finally, there is a late-life crisis. I haven't planned this one yet. 
This typically happens in your 60s and beyond. It's when older people begin to realise certain health issues they might be facing and the fact that they can't do what they want to do or used to be able to do. It involves loss of friends, facing your own mortality, reflecting on your life choices and re-evaluating your priorities. Now, after looking at all of this, having a quarter-life crisis, a mid-life crisis, and then a late-life crisis, it's made me realise that if you have all three of these, then your life will be in a constant state of never-ending identity crisis. And this is probably how some people live. Now, this is how we can face an identity crisis as individuals, but the world, I would say, has been... Uh, are going through an identity crisis as a whole since the fall. There have always been those things that broader society has decided to uh, put on people as their primary identity. So as an example of this, got multiple examples. There's one example, there's social status. Throughout most of human history, people have been identified according to their social status. You had an upper class, a middle class, and a lower class. And what class you were a part of uh, was dependent on the family that you were born into and how much money they had. For most of human history, you weren't able to change this. And this is still in play in many different parts of the world today. In certain parts of India, they still practice something called the caste system, which is an example of this. Or you can take uh, education. Uh, many people have identified themselves throughout history and broader societies have identified people by their education. In the late 1700s in Eastern Europe, there was something called the intelligentsia. And this is where people were primarily identified by their intelligence and the level of education that they had. Or you could take um, race. The civil war in America was uh, ultimately a war based on identity. This, uh, the war was fought about recognising the identity of black US citizens as something more than slaves. Or you could take the example of religion. In most countries in the world today, people don't choose a religion based on their own beliefs. They are born into a religion and this is an identifying marker for people. Even today, when we think about age, we have created different generations in groups and use these as a primary way of identifying how people will behave. Or we think about gender. Gender has often been used as a primary identity tool for people. Even in today's world, the big argument of the day around transgenderism is primarily an identity argument. It's people saying, will you allow me to identify according to the gender I choose. Or take sexuality. Over the past few years, we've developed language around identifying people who have different sexuality preferences. Now, people want to be able to be identified by their sexuality as their primary marker. But this leaves us, after looking at all of these different things, with one really big question. As people, as a group, as a whole of society, what is the thing that we should find our identity in? Throughout history, the world has always sought to tell people in different ways, this is where you should find your identity. And it's never seemed to get it right. The world keeps changing its mind on what we should find our identity in. 
So I would say the world is in an identity crisis. The world has constantly told us to identify ourselves with fairly narrow ideas, but we're more holistic as humans, as people, than just our social status, our education, race, religion, age, gender, or sexuality. Now, all of these things are important, but they're not the whole picture of who you are. If you only think about these things making the complete you, then you have not got a complete identity. It's not a holistic picture. There's more to you than just those things, particularly if you are a follower of Jesus. Who you are as a follower of Jesus is bigger and greater than all of those things that I just mentioned, all put together, and that's what the start of the book of Ephesians is all about. That's what Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus about. And at the start of the book of Ephesians, what Paul chooses to do is write this great poem. It doesn't really read like that, like that in, our, uh, in our language, uh, but for Jewish readers, they would have read this as a beautiful worship song detailing the gospel narrative. There's a flow to it. There's almost art in the way that he's writing and a way that Paul writes that's filled with this excitement and joy about what God has done. Paul doesn't even stop to take a breath as he's explaining your identity in Christ. From verses 3 to 14, that is the longest sentence in the entire New Testament. That is one sentence in the original language. That's how excited Paul is about your identity in Christ. He can't even stop to take a breath. So he is filled with joy, praising God for the new identity that we have in Christ. And with that in mind, if you have your Bibles, turn to Ephesians 1, and we'll be looking at Ephesians 1, 1 to 14. Let's look at that together. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship, through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. That is a dense passage right there. 
It might just sound for some of you like a whole heap of words all spliced together, but there is so much to say about this. This is such a beautiful way that Paul chooses to describe who you are, if you're a Christian, in Christ. There's at least, at least six things that Paul defines you as if you are a follower of Jesus. And the first two are that you are blessed and you are chosen. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are blessed and you are chosen. The painting that's been given here needs both of these words together because it's describing a king, it's describing a father who is chosen to adopt a child. You're recognised, followers of Jesus, you're recognised and seen as someone who God wants to have a relationship with. But then the picture goes one step further with what it looks like to be blessed. It's like God is this loving king who is just lavishing his adopted children with abundant gifts. It's like this royal monarch dad who is spoiling his kids with everything he can. We have been given every spiritual blessing if we are in Christ. And some of those blessings are the things that's outlined elsewhere when we go through the rest of this passage in, uh, in Ephesians. My wife is a, uh, is a real gifts person. Her love language is gifts, but she also loves to buy gifts for other people. I get rewarded out of this often, it's lovely. The day that she's looking forward to most this year is Christmas. Not because of anything that I'll be buying her, I'll do my best, but because it's her first Christmas to be able to buy things for our son, Zach. And I was talking to Sarah a few months ago after she had gone to the shops. And I asked her what she had been buying and she said that she had bought some things for Zach for Christmas this year. This was like April, and she was already buying gifts for Zek for Christmas. And she was doing this with a genuine excitement about being able to give them, him things for Christmas this year. And this is the picture that I think Paul is trying to communicate in this moment. God is this father who is excited about lavishing gifts on his adopted, chosen children. You are blessed and you are chosen. He has good gifts here for his children. Now, that's easy for us to absorb and to hear that we are blessed, but then that word chosen comes up and the word predestined, and that can cause a bit of disunity at times in the church. So I'm going to now take that and preach a sermon within a sermon. People have read into the text things that aren't there, and people have chosen to ignore things that are there. It's important to look at this passage holistically and not just frame a whole theology around one word in this passage because that's actually not what Paul is trying to do, nor was it how readers would have read it in their uh, original time. 
Paul was writing a song about the wonders of who we are because of what Christ has done. And that's how readers would have originally read this. He wasn't trying to give us some system of theology to, uh, to base a whole denomination around. He was describing an amazing truth that now we are children of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And that he has presented us with good gifts like a father has given their children. Now, with that said, I'm aware that for some of you this morning, you will have to have your intellectual needs met before it can, this passage is able to shape your emotional needs. And so I'm going to do a lightweight version within about five minutes. I'm going to, uh, to fix an argument that the church has had over thousands and thousands of years. <laughs> what does it mean to be chosen and predestined. There are three passages that use this sort of language in the New Testament. Romans 8, 28 to 30, Romans 9 to 11, and what we just read here in Ephesians 1, 1 to 14. Notice that it's only three passages here in the New Testament. This was not a core part of Paul's theology, rather something that he used to describe the wonders of what it meant to be in Christ. With that said, you can't get away from the fact that these passages used words like predestined, called, elected. However, different people interpret these words uh, and their meanings differently. And all of this has to do with how you view an even bigger topic. And the bigger topic that we have to uh, think about is God's sovereignty and how that relates to free will. There's a spectrum that we will inevitably fall on in how we view God's sovereignty and our free will. Christians have disagreed and argued about this for centuries and how these two things work together and if they work together at all. Now, I would say it's very, very clear throughout Scripture, if you just look at Isaiah 40, that God is sovereign. You can't get away from that truth. He is sovereign. He is in control. He has the universe in the palm of his hand. He influences things happening here around us. And that should give us great reassurance. We know that God is at work in what is happening around us. God is sovereign and he is in control. But if we take that to the extreme and see every little thing that has ever happened as a as a cause from God, then we're left with some difficulties. Firstly, first difficulty is that that means that God has actively caused evil to take place. If everything that has ever happened, every minute thing that has ever happened has been caused by God, that includes evil. It means that sin has ultimately been committed through God making it happen. Refer to James 1, 13 to 15, and you can see that that's definitely not the case. Secondly, it can make prayer and evangelism redundant. If God has already ordained everything that will happen, why pray? Why, pray? why share the gospel? Thirdly, it means that you had zero choice in your salvation. And fourthly, if God has actively decided who will be with him for eternity, it also means that he has actively decided that others will not be with him for eternity. Now, let's speak to these last two 
difficulties that we have because that's what being chosen is being spoken about here in this passage in Ephesians. If God had said that certain people will be Christians and others won't, the cross was only partially effective. It would mean that John 3.16 is redundant. It would be phrased, for God loved some of the world that he gave his only son, that those predestined will have eternal life. But it doesn't say that. It says Jesus' sacrifice was available for all. Later on, Paul writes to, uh, to Timothy, who at this stage is leading the church in Ephesus, and says, it's God's will that all people would be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. God's love was for all people and salvation is available for all. So it seems that God has made salvation available for those who will respond to him. And yet we also see that God is sovereign and in control. He is in control and working all things for the good of those who love him. On the other hand, so that's God's sovereignty. But what about our free will? It's also clear in scripture that we have free will. God designed humanity like this, and we see this in just the first three chapters in Scripture. We were given a choice as to whether we would eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil or whether we wouldn't, and we chose to eat. God didn't make Adam and Eve eat from the tree. But if we take that to the extreme, if we take our free will to the extreme and see every little thing that has ever happened is a cause of human free will, then we are left with some other difficulties. Firstly, it means that God is removed from his creation and has no part in making anything happen. It means that he's not at work in our world. Secondly, once again, it makes prayer redundant because ultimately everything is caused by human free will. Thirdly, it diminishes the power and knowledge of God and leaves us with a lack of assurance that God's plans will ultimately prevail. Psalm 33, 10 to 11 clearly refutes this. Fourthly, it means that you were solely responsible for your salvation, which is very difficult to think of when we get to the book of Romans. Now, we realise, when you take all of this into account, that the two extremes here can't be true. We see God, through the pages of Scripture, working and shaping and guiding his people towards certain things. God is at work and he is in control. And yet humans also have the option of choosing him. We see that in the first few chapters of Genesis. So if God is in control, somehow working in and through what happens in this world, despite our free will, what does that mean for us? Most of us will find ourselves at some time somewhere on this spectrum between God's sovereignty and our free will. But it seems like Scripture doesn't leave us this option of leaving us at one extreme or the other. So on one hand, we're not just God's puppets in a play where he's making everything happen. On the other hand, we don't have so much freedom that we can thwart the plans of God through our own free will. We're left sitting in this middle ground, to comprehend a paradox that's at the heart of the Christian worldview. Now, a paradox is not a contradiction. A, uh, a well-known author called Parker Palmer, he writes in, the, uh, in a book called The Promise of Par Paradox uh, this. A paradox is a statement that seems self-contradictory, 
But in reality, may express a possible truth that I cannot see from my limited perspective. Niels Bohr, the Nobel Prize winning physicist, said it in this way. The opposite of a correct statement is a false statement. But the opposite of a profound truth may be another profound truth. The spiritual journey proceeds with a trembling confidence that God's truth is too large for the simplicity of either or. It can be apprehended by the comple- only by the complexity of both and. Now, taking a view like this, this is not intellectual laziness or sloppiness. This is intellectual humility. So is God completely sovereign, including when it comes to salvation? Yes. But do we have free will, including being involved in our salvation through responding to Jesus? Yes. So when it boils down to it, the question that Ephesians 1 can cause us to ask, including thinking about Lily's baptism this morning, does God choose us or do we choose him? Did Lily choose God or did God choose her? And the answer is yes. (laughs) You have been chosen by God. You have been adopted into his family. There is also something involved with our free will that means that God is not forcing us to respond to his love, grace and kindness towards us. There is this interplay that happens here between the divine God and his human creation who are made in his image. So that's the sermon within the sermon done. With all of that in mind, Paul's point is not to define, in our way of thinking, what it means to be chosen and predestined. He is trying to get you, the reader, to be amazed that the king of all things, that the king of the universe chooses you to be his child. You are the child of a king and he loves you and has good gifts for you. He's already given you every good gift in the spiritual realms, like a gracious king giving presents to their child on their birthday. And this is a truth that should impact your heart even more than it impacts your head. So you are blessed and chosen and you are redeemed and forgiven. We're a third of the way there. That's not true. Go faster through these next ones. Verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace. Now this seems like such a simple and yet it's such a freeing part of our identity in Jesus. Martin Luther, the famous reformer, he was well known for certain practices he undertook in his time as a monk. Um, Before the Reformation took place, Um, He was a Catholic monk for almost 20 years, and early in his journey as a Catholic monk, he would whip himself on the back until he was bleeding to purify him of his sin. He would also fast to the extent that he almost died on several occasions, once again to purify himself of his sin. Now, most of us probably, I hope, wouldn't live lives like this. And yet I see people, particularly men, who have certain addictions in their lives that they are unable to break free from. And they talk themselves down all the time and they adopt a defeated posture when it comes to their sin. 
But the fact that you are redeemed and forgiven means that you're not fighting sin from a place of defeat, but you are fighting from a place of victory. You already have victory over sin. You already have been brought out of old life into new life. That's what we're celebrating this morning. You've already had your sin removed as far as the east is from the west. You've already been washed and cleansed by Jesus. And your job is to now live in the identity that you already have. Like the person you already are. Don't go back to your previous identity. You are redeemed and forgiven. Don't live in the defeated life. Be, uh, adopt the posture of, vic of victory over sin. But also, don't be apathetic towards sin in your life. Being redeemed and forgiven is not this excuse to do anything you want. It's a freedom to live like you already are. Being apathetic towards sin is still living the defeated life. It's just, the def uh, it's just a defeated life that has no life left to, uh, to live. Live as the person you already are. You are redeemed and forgiven. And finally, you are sealed and you are heirs. Verses 13 to 14. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of the of those who are in God's, who are God's possession, to the praise of his glory. The Holy Spirit, who lives inside of you, makes his temple inside of you, is the marker on your life that you are in Christ. The Spirit is the one who gives you access to your in internal inheritance in the new heavens and the new earth. And then when you enter the new heavens and the new earth, you receive all of your spiritual blessings, which is your inheritance from your father, the king. He's got everything waiting for you when you enter into eternity with him. So that list, not the list that we started our time with, that list, that is who you are if you are a follower of Jesus. You are blessed and chosen, redeemed and forgiven. You are sealed and heirs. And my guess is that most of us would shout amen, probably in our hearts, uh, to that list being our identity. I mean, earlier on, when I was reading all of the different things that people within our world can find their identity in, social status, education, race, religion, age, gender or sexuality, many of us wouldn't have resonated with any of these things and we would have thought, that's not what I really find my identity in. But I think what we have done at times in the church, unintentionally, is still replace our identity in Christ with other things as our primary identity. We have still got an identity crisis within the church, but we just choose to identify ourselves by different things in the world. So for example, we may identify ourselves by our financial status. I still hear people in the church comparing themselves based on how much money or possessions they have. People are still finding their identity in the size of their house or their money in the bank. Or you might find your identity in politics. Christians in particular are identifying themselves more and more with a particular political party than being one with Jesus. Or you might identify yourself by your personality type. Now, more than anyone, I'm all for personality types. I'm an ISTJ on the Myers-Briggs and I'm an Enneagram One. And these tools have been greatly helpful in my self-reflection, but they don't define who I am. Or 
You might define yourself, find your primary identity in your family. Probably the biggest and least mentioned area in our lives that we can identify ourselves by is our family. Now, in a really unhealthy way, we can be drawn to worship of family, and I think that's overtaken many people in their understanding here in the church. This is causing huge issues because eventually, if your kids move away or your partner passes away, suddenly your identity is destroyed. Even more than that, if you look for your family to take on the place of Christ in your life, they will let you down. And it's moments like that when you can see uh, different things being uh, complained about on social media because people have looked for something in their child or in their partner that they should be looking for in Jesus. Or people within the church, we can look for our identity in our career. We can find our primary place of identity in what we do and working up the chain until we've achieved everything that we feel like we should have. So we're not free here in the church of our own share of identity issues. We just have uh, different identity issues that sound different to the rest of the world. Last week at our, at our worship night, I had just begun to think about this sermon for this morning, and I was reflecting on identity and how we can go looking for it in the wrong places. And sadly, the thing that I thought was, thank you, Lord, that this isn't one of my issues anymore. Thank you, Lord, that I find my identity in you fully and completely. Now, as soon as that thought entered my mind, God, of course he did this to me. He brought to my mind the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers and adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. And I just knew that in that moment, I was thinking like the Pharisee. Thank you, Lord, that I'm not like other people who have identity issues. I've got everything under control. Because it was at that same moment, I just sensed God was saying to me, that's why you don't share personal stuff. Gee, if everyone from this church, if you all left overnight, please don't do that, by the way, and everyone here, blamed me for leaving and you never had the opportunity to be a pastor again is he still enough if not then your identity is not as fully in me as you think is it enough dave just to be blessed and chosen redeemed and forgiven sealed and my heir and i realized that even for me even though i have worked on this so much i can still find myself slipping into finding my identity more by my career rather than being a child of God. Now, maybe you actually are here this morning and you do find your identity fully and completely in Christ. Maybe you are in that spot, but my guess is that there's many of you who think you've got your identity sorted and maybe you don't. The question you have to ask is, is that enough? Is being 
blessed and chosen, redeemed and forgiven, sealed and heirs, is that enough for you to be, to be those things as a child of God? After the Pharisee gave thanks for not being like sinners, we see these words. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And this morning, just as the team comes up right now, I just want to invite you to humble yourself before God and ask an important question. Is that enough? Being blessed and chosen, redeemed and forgiven, sealed and heirs. And when you ask that question and really comprehend your identity in Jesus, you'll move from asking that as a question to acknowledging that as a statement. You won't be saying, is it enough? You'll be saying, it is enough. It is more than enough for me. Would you please stand? Let's pray together. What a wonderful truth, God, that being your child means that we are these different things. We are blessed and we are chosen. We are redeemed and we are forgiven. We are sealed by your spirit and we are heirs of a king. And right now, Lord, for anyone here who may have been finding a primary source of identity through something other than you. Would you realign their hearts once again to what it means to just be your child? Would we find that as enough in our lives? Would we not look to the things of this world to satisfy us, but would we know that you are enough for us? So right now, Lord, would you humble us? If anyone here might just be thinking that they have all of this sorted out, there is nothing else that they need to, uh, to learn in their own heart. Lord, I just really do pray that you will humble all of us. Would we come to you like the tax collector did? Would we acknowledge that, yes, we are all of these things, but we, don't also, we also don't have it all together? And we need your grace and your spirit to work within our lives. So we open ourselves up to that right now as we sing in Jesus' name. Amen.